Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Deremming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about VBC, including our upcoming schedule of in-person and online events. Sign up for our VBC magazine and our VBC blog, all on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Today's guest on The Scuttlebutt is Dr. Mitch Maki. He is the president and chief executive officer of Go for Broke, a nonprofit based in California. Their mission is to educate and inspire character and equality through the virtue and valor of World War II American veterans of Japanese ancestry. If you know anything about World War II history, after Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese, there was obviously a lot of fear and hatred of the Japanese here in the on the home front. And in February of 1942, Executive Order 9066 was passed through Congress. This created camps uh, here uh, at home in the United States they moved Japanese Americans into. Uh, this is an absolute black mark on the history of America, and we get into that. Dr. Maki and I talk about that, talk about what was like in the camps. Obviously, even the word camps, when you think of World War II, you think of Germany and the concentration camps. Um, so we dive into how those camps differed from the ones here in America. And what I found really interesting is that Japanese Americans that, that were living in these camps, uh, some of them actually did serve uh, in the U.S. military. They served in the European theater. They also served in the Pacific. And uh, we talk about the men. We talk about their families. We talk about the book that Dr. Maki co-authored, Achieving the Impossible Dream, which detail how Japanese Americans uh, obtained redress and the U.S. government acknowledged the wrongs uh, that they committed during this time. It's a fascinating conversation. I hope that you stick around for the full one and also check out Go For Broke's website here in the description as well as Dr. Maki's book, Achieving the Possible Dream. You can find that link down there in the description as well. And also, uh, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns. Um, thank you again uh, for supporting the podcast and enjoy the show. Joining me now is Dr. Mitch Maki. Uh, Mitch, you are the president and CEO of Go For Broke, the National Education Center. Uh, I've, I can't wait to get more into the nonprofit and all of the, the wonderful work that you are doing. Um, but uh, I was so excited also to just be uh, reached out to, to ask to become out under the scuttlebutt. Love for you to introduce yourself. Welcome to the scuttlebutt. Well, Sean, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And as you mentioned, yes, I, I'm the president of Go For Broke National Education Center. And I'm not a veteran myself. My father was a veteran. Uh, he served in the Army in the Korean War. But we at Gopher Broke National Education Center really focus on World War II the, and the experience of the Japanese-American soldiers who were born and raised in America, were American by tradition and loyalty, who chose to serve our nation during World War II, even though a good number of them had families that were incarcerated in camps at that time, or for the young men from Hawaii, uh, uh, you know, their families were treated as second-class citizens and they were distrusted at the time. And another little-known fact is that there were a number of women who served during that time, not in combat at that time, but served in the WACs and, and helped mm -hmm. to uh, push the war effort forward. And all of these young uh, men and women demonstrated the wisdom of America's promise. And that's the promise that in our nation, no one is to be judged by the color of their skin, the nation of their origin, or the faith that they choose to keep. And I think these young men and women did a fantastic job in doing that. There's a lot to get into. I'd love to dive a little bit into your your personal history of like your father served army, you know, Korean War. What was that like? Did he talk about it? Um, and and how, you know, you eventually decided that, you know, this was a passion of yours that you wanted to come out and, and, and be a part of Go For Broke. Mm -hmm. So my parents uh, are what we call Nisei, second generation. And the way Japanese Americans count that, it's the immigrant or uh, generation is the first generation. The firstborn American generation are the second generation, the Nisei, and that's my parents. So they were both born and raised in Hawaii. They were both uh, young adult or teenagers, really, around the time of Pearl Harbor. And my father uh, was just a little too young to serve in World War II, but then went on to serve in the Korean War. Eventually, they moved to California, and I was born and raised here. You know, So I grew up 
uh, knowing my father was a veteran. And he was a, a decorated veteran. He earned a silver star and a purple heart. So he was wounded. So I would actually grow up seeing the bullet wound in his shoulder, you know, and he would tell me the story about how he got the bullet uh, wound and so forth. But like so many other veterans, the stories that he would tell me about wartime were the ones that were very, you know, uh, benign, you know, and there were sometimes the funny stories that he could remember or the, the stories that he thought I as a child could digest. And he really never got into the gruesome details. And, you know, my father saw combat. He he literally was on the front line. So I grew up knowing that he had served. And somewhere along the lines, when I was a young boy, I, I learned of the Japanese-American history of how during World War II, we were distrusted and we, we were treated like the enemy because we shared a common heritage. And that, in fact, we were sent off to camps across the United States and incarcerated for three to four years of our lives. And, you know, my family was in Hawaii at that time, so they were not sent to camp because the Japanese Americans weren't sent to camp in from Hawaii. But I remember thinking, oh, this couldn't be Japanese Americans like me and my parents. It had to be maybe the Japanese from Japan that they captured somehow or something mm -hmm. like that. And then I learned, no, the, the, these were American citizens of Japanese ancestry. Mm -hmm. you know, Two thirds of those who were incarcerated were born in America, were raised in America and were loyal by, by tradition and practice. And the other third, like my grandparents, you know, generation, had been here some for 40, 50 years. My grandparents immigrated in 1900. So oh, wow. by the time World War II started, they had been here 40 years. Yeah. And the reason why they did not naturalize and, uh, and all the other Issei first generation did not naturalize is because they were prohibited by law at that time from naturalization. Japanese in America were considered aliens ineligible to citizenship. That was the legal term, and they were prohibited from naturalizing, and that didn't change until the 1950s. Why did they decide to come over? My my uh, grandparents? Mm -hmm. Primarily for economic reasons. You know, uh, there was a chance to have a better life in, a, in America. You know, many of uh, the Japanese, uh, they were men at first who... Uh, came and they were oftentimes the second, third, fourth born son in the family. Mm -hmm. So they weren't going to inherit the family's wealth because in Japan at that time, the oldest son inherited everything. And in different parts of the uh, uh, country of Japan, there were economic hardships, you know, that uh, there wasn't a lot of ways to make money. And at that time, Hawaii was just opening up and they needed laborers. They needed people who could fish and who could farm. And that's what a lot of the Japanese immigrants at that time came from farming and fishing families. So just from an economic point of view, it made a lot of sense. Their ambition at that time was go, make a lot of money, and come back to Japan as a rich man. You know? <laughs> well, very quickly, they found out that wasn't going to be the reality. As you know, It was backbreaking labor. It was uh, difficult uh, and hard work, and it paid pennies you know, yeah. type of thing. And then it wasn't until later that uh, the women started coming over. And at that by that point, the uh, Japanese immigrants realized, this is our country now. This is mm -hmm. where we will um, uh, plant stakes and, and, and raise a family. And as soon as they started having children, you know, that was even more cemented as people, my parents' generation, became the first true Japanese Americans, you know, uh, bicultural, where they would speak uh japanese to their parents but at school they'd speak english you know at mm -hmm. home they might eat japanese food at school they would eat american food and i know my father and his generation grew up knowing that they were american you know there was no yeah. question in my father's mind he had never been to japan he uh you know he spoke a few words of japanese and so forth but truly uh had adopted the american culture and american values and so was there a sense of community where where there are already immigrants here that they could uh they can have friends you know it's it, they spoke a different language was it was it difficult to like integrate into the society 
Well, and, and there, there are basically two different stories here. There's the Hawaii story, because yeah. Hawaii being an island, being much smaller, uh, the immigration and there was a workforce immigration, not only of Japanese, but of Chinese and Filipinos and so forth. So mm -hmm. it was a very multi-ethnic kind of experience there. Uh, and there was a large number of Japanese immigrants who started to create that community that you're referring to. Yeah. On the continental United States, the same thing was happening. There was uh, still immigration here. There was work to be done and, and jobs to be filled and so forth. But because of the, the vastness of the continental United States, it's just spread out a lot more. And there, there became Japanese enclaves that served as community and people would migrate there. Partly because people wanted to be around others that were like them, that shared a similar background, but also because of the redlining laws of the time where, you know, you couldn't live in certain places if you were of Asian descent or in particular of Japanese descent. So, you know, Japanese immigrants were kind of forced to live together in community. Uh, and we know Hawaii was uh, was not a state at this point, right? Um, but uh, you know, a lot of the Japanese Americans who were living—would you call them Japanese Americans living in Hawaii at that time? At that time, you would, because yeah. in fact, even though they were a territory, the the uh, every territory is treated a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. The territory of Hawaii—if you were born there, you became an American citizen. Mm -hmm. So my parents were born in Hawaii as a territory, and were considered American citizens at that time. So truly, they were Japanese Americans. Of course, they didn't have the representation at that time in Congress and so forth. Uh, so they didn't get to vote in the same way. Do you think that, you know, in their experience, they come over and you're coming from your home country in Japan, and you obviously have a lot of pride in what your your home is. So this is the the new home. And do you think a lot of the American fear towards immigrants, and you could count even nowadays as that, but the fear at that time to immigrants was sort of like, you're foreign, do you hold American values over Japanese values? And how do you, how did they navigate that? Because uh, I'm sure it was a very difficult thing to to work through with, you know, your new neighbors. You know, what you're describing really is the acculturation and assimilation process that all immigrants go through when they come yeah. to America, right? You leave your homeland and what you know, and then you have to adopt uh, a new homeland with new values and new cultures and, and make that uh, transition. And then you layer over that, that your homeland goes to war with, with your new country. You yeah. know, I mean, that it, uh, that's an incredible context for any ethnic group you know, any immigrant group to figure out how do you navigate that, you know? And for the hundreds of thousands of Japanese Americans that were here or Japanese in um, America, you know, there are different stories as to how different people dealt with it, right? But the overwhelming majority of both Japanese immigrants who came here and their off first uh, generation offspring who were born here realized that this was their country, you mm -hmm. know? And yes, there may have been some um, uh, mixed loyalties at first and, you know, nobody, uh, the best way I, I heard it once put is when your mother and father argue, you don't want either to win. You just want the argument to stop, you yeah. know? Right. And I think for many Japanese Americans, that was the initial uh, feeling. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, mom and dad are arguing this is not going to be good right but in particular for the american-born japanese there was no question in their mind as to who they were you know they were born and raised here they had never been to japan and so forth and so on so you know clearly in their minds there were uh they were american now having said that there were some individuals who eventually said send me back to japan you know especially mm -hmm. after the incarceration started to occur as yeah. they said well if you're going to do this to me i'm i'm not staying i'm you know, send me back but they were the vast minority you know yeah. and let me also say for just for context that throughout world war ii there was not one japanese american who was convicted of any type of sabotage or espionage or betrayal of america you mm -hmm. know and, and in fact as as you know the record speaks the opposite way where these young men would go off and fight in Europe and in the Pacific theater 
and become the most highly decorated unit of their size in American military history for length of service. I mean, it's an incredible story when you think of it in that context. Well, absolutely. And there's some minute details in, in within that that I want to get to. I think first I want to, uh, when uh, was it the executive order 90, uh, 9066? Right. So was it anywhere start... in, was it anywhere in their, like, did they think that America would do this at all, create these camps that they would then be forced to live in? I think, again, for uh, all the hundreds of thousands of folks that uh, Japanese Americans that were in America, everyone would have their own opinion and yeah. and they would be spread out across the board. But I think uh, when we think back at that time, it, everything happened so quickly, mm. you know, and later on, there would be a commission uh, hearing that talked about how the camps were wrong, but that the camps were the result of wartime hysteria, mm -hmm. race prejudice, mm -hmm. and a failure of political leadership. And you know, that wartime hysteria and the race prejudice just mixed together in such a volatile way at that time. So if we go back and start with December 7th, you know, mm -hmm. 1941, the Imperial Nation of Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, and it thrusts the United States into World War II. And immediately, immediately, Japanese Americans began to wonder what would happen to us. Would we be treated like the American citizens we were, two-thirds of whom had been born here, mm -hmm. or would we be treated like the enemy because we uh, shared a common heritage, right? And immediately, the FBI started picking up Japanese Americans. I mean, literally, that day and the day after, FBI was knocking at people's doors, taking the heads of families away. So you know, rumors started spreading very quickly. So mm -hmm. at that moment, anything was possible Yeah, in, yeah. in terms of what's going to happen to us, right, in answer to your question. Um, and then two months later, February 19th, 1942, so a little bit over two months after Pearl Harbor is when President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which created the underpinnings by which uh, the Japanese Americans on the west coast of the United States would be removed from the west coast and then sent off to camps. You mm -hmm. know. So again, things were moving so quickly. The FBI moved very quickly in starting to arrest leaders in the community, both in Hawaii as well as on the mainland. Uh, so there was that sense of hysteria and this sense of, of racism that was mm -hmm. going on at the time. The other point is that during World War II, the Nazis were considered by Americans as evil men. The Japanese were considered an evil subhuman species. You know, it, Interesting. It, yeah. it, 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 it wasn't simply, oh, they're, we're fighting them, they're the enemy, but there was that mixture of racial animus that gets uh, rolled into that, you know, mm -hmm. that... Uh, uh, these aren't even human beings that we're dealing with, you know. And the truth is, most Japanese Americans at that time were either in Hawaii or on the west coast of the United States. So, you know, if you lived anywhere from Nevada east, you probably didn't know a Japanese American. You probably hadn't right. seen one, or you know, I, I mean, uh, it's just a very small number of people east of Nevada really understood who these folks were that called themselves Japanese Americans. Can we d define like the like the camps as you know what were they like what was the living conditions because I think it's it's difficult like for myself as a civilian you obviously everybody knows the concentration camps in Germany and how uh, inhuman and awful they were um, and you hear like there were Japanese American camps or even I've heard them called concentration camps mm -hmm. as well how did they differ from the German ones and and were there similarities. Okay, excellent, excellent question. And and in fact, yes, there are, are a large number of people, including myself, who refer to these camps in America as America's concentration camps. Mm -hmm. Let me be very clear. That's in no way to compare what happened to Japanese Americans to what happened to Jews in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. You know, the incarceration of 120,000 people is not the same as the... Uh, elimination of six million human beings which happened in in uh, nazi germany and in fact there are some who say you know the camps that were in nazi germany weren't really concentration camps 
They were death camps. And in fact, the Jews called them death camps and extermination camps. So, yeah, I don't want to get caught up in semantics in, in, right. in that sense. The, the camps that were here in America meet the definition of concentration camp in a sense that they concentrated people. They brought them together. And there were 10 main uh, what were called war relocation authority camps. Those are the ones that we normally think of. Manzanar, Heart Mountain, Tule Lake, uh, Roar, Jerome, the, the, the main ones. And then there were some minor ones. But the main 10 were located everywhere from Eastern California all the way out to Arkansas. There were two camps in Arkansas. And by and large, they were located in the most desolate places one can imagine. You know, in, in California, Manzanar is in the middle of the desert. You know, beautiful when you're in your car, but during the summer, it gets well over 100. In the winter, well below freezing, you know, type of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, other places, just desolate swamplands that they could find and so forth. So they were located not in the best of areas. And literally, they were surrounded by barbed wire, and they were uh, uh, there were machine gun towers that, and there were military gates with armed sentries, and the machine gun towers. The machine guns weren't pointed outward to protect the Japanese Americans; they were pointed inward to control the Japanese Americans. Uh, it was very much communal living. You you would live in barracks. You know, families, several families would share long barracks and. Initially, they were just separated by hanging blankets or uh, uh, hanging sheets, and eventually they would be able to build up some walls. But privacy was really not something that these families got to enjoy. Mess halls were where you ate. You know, latrines is where you did your your private business, uh, communal showers, and so forth. You know, um, there was no extermination of human beings in in like in nazi germany there was there were people who died in these camps some of natural causes or causes related to being incarcerated in the middle of the desert mm -hmm. there were a couple of instances where there were re resistance riots or where a sentry you know ordered somebody to stop and shot them and so forth and again uh these things happened, but they were not the norm of everyday living. You know, uh, the other interesting thing that your listeners may find uh, interesting, because so many times when I start talking about this, people will say, I want to interview somebody who was in camps. I want to know what it was like firsthand. Well, if you interview somebody today who was five years old in the camp, you know, they're like 85 years old, 85, yeah. 90 years old, you know, so they're going to have a child's perspective of what the camp was like. And for some of them, it was actually fun, you know, in the sense that they were with other kids, they were, their parents protected them and so forth. You know, it's unfortunate that the generation above them who lost everything, those, they're no longer with us. And we have a lot of interviews with them on, on videotape and so forth, but it's that generation and even the generation above them who lost their homes, they lost their jobs, they lost their businesses, they lost their communities. But most of all, for the adults, what was lost was a sense of place at the American table of citizenship. Were we Americans or were we not? So the war is going on, and these families are all, you know, they're 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 concentrated here. How did what happened that made the American government come to them and say, we need we need more men? And why? Right. I think that's the biggest question in my head is why, once you've been put into this situation, would you say, yeah, I'll fight for you? <laughs> that's an excellent question. Yeah. And so, you know, immediately after Pearl Harbor, December 7th, there were Japanese Americans who were in the military at that time. And especially in Hawaii, the Hawaii National Guard or Territorial Guard, as it was referred to at that time, was made up of a lot of Japanese Americans who immediately took up positions on the beach in, in around Pearl Harbor to protect the islands, you know, uh, and, and you have to put yourself in that mindset that for many of us on the mainland, we had never even heard of Pearl Harbor, you know, some yeah. distant place and a place called Hawaii and so forth. But for the Japanese Americans and actually for all the Americans living on Oahu, this was personal. 
You know, the Japanese didn't just bomb America. They bombed our backyard, you know. And when I speak to the veterans of that time, you know, they'll remember the sounds of the bombs exploding, the, the seeing the, the uh, Japanese aircraft flying overhead and literally feeling the vibrations of the explosions. And then many of them will talk about, you know, knowing people that were killed that day, both civilian as well as military you know so for them it was very personal and it was it was more than you know a, a nation has attacked our nation a nation has attacked us and so for many of them they were ready to go to battle and saying let's let's do this right uh so shortly after december 7th within the next few days they were they had their guns taken away from them the japanese american soldiers and they were deemed 4C, enemy alien unfit for duty. Yeah. And wow. they were and they were sidelined. So they were they couldn't be discharged from service because of ethnicity, but they could be sidelined. Eventually, um the uh, Hawaii Territorial Territorial Guard was transformed into the 100th Battalion and they were then mobilized and sent off to Mississippi for for training. And then they were eventually put into battle in Europe, in uh, first of all, Northern Africa, and then they would go into Italy. And their initial record of just um, loyalty and valor on the battlefield impressed the army officials. And to the point where the army decided, okay, let's expand this experiment because the army needed more men to go and fight in Europe. And so let's expand this experiment and let's create a segregated unit of Japanese Americans called the 442nd. And the 100th would become uh, a part of the 442nd. And so then the call was put out in 1943 for young men to volunteer for the 442nd. Mm -hmm. On the first day that they could, 10,000, 10,000 young men from Hawaii said, send me. They they said, I want to sign up. You know, they're raring to go for all the reasons we just talked about. On the mainland, in these camps, it was quite a different story, as, as you alluded to, right? It's like, why would I go and fight for a, a country that has taken everything away from my family? But on that first day, over 1,200 young men from the camp said, yes, I will go, you know, and thousands would follow them after that. But, you know, Sean, as you alluded to, it was a very difficult decision. You know, I can on, imagine. On one hand, I'm sorry to interrupt. I can. I, I think yeah. about it because a lot of times we ask our veterans, you know, what did what did your parents think when you said I'm going to go enlist in the Marine Corps? You know, and what'd your mom say? And you know, I, I I I'm sure that it was difficult for those parents, being a parent myself, especially in the situation that I've been forced into. To look at my kid and say, yeah, like if, if you do this, you could die, but you could also stay here and be in, incarcerated, rock in a hard place. What do you choose? And, and I, in a video that I watched of a previous interview from you, I think it was a, a Masuda. Yeah, uh, he said, yes. this, this is the only thing, the only way I know how to uh, give my family a chance in America. Exactly. So, the, yes, yes. So on one hand, you know. There were family ties that, and families were scared, right? They're yeah. they're in the middle of the desert. They're surrounded by barbed wire. We don't know what how the war is going to go. We don't know what the future holds. And and so some families felt like we've got to stay together. You know, they've taken everything from us. Don't let them take the family. We got to stay together, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you know, for many of the older Japanese Americans or. Uh, they didn't speak Japanese. The I mean, they didn't speak English, the, yeah. the, the immigrants, right? So they needed their oldest son to stay and help translate and, and be a part of the family. You know, so there, there was that. And then, and then there was also the outrage of how dare you, they say they want to take my son after they've taken everything else. And how can you fight for a nation that does this? Or, and, and even though many of them loved America, it was a feeling of give me back my rights and then I yeah. will go and fight, right? Mm -hmm. On the flip side, there was a feeling like, hey, they don't trust us now. They don't think we're Americans. And if we say no, I'm not going to go and fight. I'm just proving them right. 
and and the future for me, the future for our family, the future for our future generations, it's all gone if we don't prove that we are American, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where the quote that you just talked about, Kazuo Masuda, who was a young Japanese American who was in the 442nd, he was asked once he was in battle, why are you doing this? Your family's back home in Arizona behind barbed wire. And he said, because this is the only way I know my family can have a chance in America. You know, right or wrong, agree with it or not, the Japanese-American soldiers of World War II understood that in 1943, 1944, and 1945, loyalty needed to be demonstrated in blood. And that's uh, that was a, a quote I had heard you mention before, and that really stuck out to me, that, that loyalty was demonstrated in blood. And that's uh, that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, 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 you know, and uh, and that's, you know, in 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 Japanese, there's a phrase, okage-sama de, mm -hmm. because of you, I am, you know, and, and that's a feeling that resonates throughout the Japanese-American community for what these soldiers did. They paid in blood for the ability for someone like me to go on and live my life. I mean, Japanese Americans today have so many opportunities, as do all Americans, right? But that was paid for in blood. And and as we oftentimes say, this isn't just a great Japanese American story. This is a great American story. Mm -hmm. This is the story of the sons and daughters of immigrants who in one generation came here and said, this is our nation. We are American and we stand for what America stands for. And that's so true for so many other groups too. And you know, no one should question uh, the Americanism of an individual based on their race or their background. And it wasn't like when they decided to raise their hand and say, I'll go fight, that things got easier outside of the camp because it was a segregated army. And despite being with other Japanese Americans within their unit or their battalion uh, or their, their combat team, they still were who was who was their their superior officer and oh, were yeah. those white americans and did that uh, was that difficult to to follow yes yeah uh, their their commanding officers were uh white americans and the range of their attitudes about japanese americans range from knowing nothing about Japanese Americans, having very racist views of Japanese Americans, to some knowing about Japanese Americans because they trained with them or, or uh, had been you know, with them in Hawaii and uh, in other places. So but, you know, I don't want to cast it all as all the white officers were bad because they weren't. There were some that very much earned the respect of the Japanese American soldiers. But, you know, Initially, especially initially, Japanese Americans were the unit was treated as cannon fodder. They were oftentimes the first in the battle and having to cross uh, open fields under heavy art, uh, artillery and machine gun fire from the Nazis. So, you know, as we talked about earlier, they became the most highly decorated unit of their size for length of service in American military history. The reason for that unfortunately, is because they were awarded so many Purple Hearts. Mm -hmm. you know, the, and as you know, that's the medal that you receive when you're wounded or killed. And, and so that, um, you know, that you're right. When they volunteered, you know, things didn't immediately get better. You know, and there was no deal on the table, like if you volunteer, your parents get out or anything like that. It's just you come volunteer and, you know, you can hope for whatever you want to hope for. And then a year later, after, you know, this is 1943, they're asking for volunteers. Well, the, the experiment, if you will, goes so well that they decide, the Army decides, okay, we're done asking for volunteers. We're now drafting individuals. Mm. Yeah. So now, Sean, you get your draft notice, and it's no longer, oh, do I want to go or do I not want to go? You know, it's either I go or I resist, and I go to the penitentiary. And, and there were some Japanese Americans at that time who resisted and said, you know, in, in, in Wyoming, there was a Heart Mountain camp and there was a group 
of 63 young Japanese Americans, and they were known as the Fair Play Committee. And their stance was, give me back my rights, and I will fight. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, I won't fight. And and they were very principled, and they were well ahead of their time. You know, because yeah. hell no, I won't go. <laughs> that was like 20 years later, right? With right. Uh, the 60s. And unfortunately for them, many of them were branded as cowards, mm -hmm. as traitors to the Japanese-American community. Because th this was a heated debate. I mean, let, let's be very clear about this. People had strong feelings one way or another. You got to serve or you don't serve, you know, and uh, families literally stopped talking to one another. Uh, fa within families, people stopped talking to one another if they chose one over the other. And these young men at Heart Mountain, as well as elsewhere, were branded as cowards, when in fact they truly weren't, because many of them would go on and serve the US in the U.S. military in the Korean War, you mm -hmm. know, several years later. So it wasn't that they were unwilling to serve, but they were very principled about why they should serve or under what conditions they would serve. Uh as they were sent off to war, somebody listening in says, I, you know, I, I've never heard of uh, the 100th Battalion or the, uh, the 442nd. Um, could they easily just Google that and find out some of the battles or their, their journey, like where they went, where they were at, the battles they were a part of? Yes, definitely. Uh, four, you, know, you Google 442 RCT, things will pop up. 100th Battalion, things will pop, pop up. Pop up. Uh, go for Broke. Uh, things will pop up. Go for Brook National Education Center. Things will pop up. It, it, once you start there, you, you won't have any uh, problems. And, you know, a lot of your listeners may also have the question, well, why do you call yourselves Go for Broke? You know, what I is thought that? that that's, that's, I have that written down. <laughs> okay. So, so let's go there because, um, you know, some people know the term now and it, it essentially means go all in. You know, you hear it in sports a lot or in gambling, like let's go for broke, let's go all in, let's give it our all. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it originated in Hawaii. It was a gambling term. And the guys from Hawaii love to gamble. I mean, my my parents, as I told you, are from Hawaii, man. Gambling is a part of our family, you know, type of thing. And the term was go for broke. Let's go all in. And the attitude was let's take this same feeling and apply it on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. You know, because we the stakes are high. We're going to go for broke. We're fighting not only for our country, we're not only fighting against the enemy, we're fighting for our futures in America. Incredible. Uh, uh, what were their jobs? You mentioned like being cannon fodder, being the tip of the spear, uh, but uh, uh, translators, you know, how, what type of jobs were they given? Well, in Europe, they were a full-on unit. You know, I mean, they, they had er everything from... Uh, the scouts to the infantrymen to the medics to the uh, cooks to the supply chain operators you know it, it was the whole nine yards right okay. and um uh, and in fact the 442nd had its own artillery unit which is the 522nd and we'll talk about that in a minute because there's an incredible story about the 522nd you mentioned translators and that's the other half of the story which is that in uh, so we're talking about Europe, but also in the Pacific theater, the army or the Marines in particular were uh, interested in and needed translators and uh, interpreters and intelligence specialists. So for those Japanese Americans who were in America, who had some linguistic ability with Japanese, you know, they grew up maybe speaking more Japanese at home. Some of them did go to Japan for a couple of years when they were children and so forth. Mm -hmm. So they were handpicked out and sent to Minnesota for the military intelligence service and were uh, trained in sharpening their language skills. They were then shipped off to uh, the Pacific Theater and they would interrogate POWs. They would translate intercepted messages. They would um, serve as intelligence specialists. And their experience was a little bit different because unlike being in a segregated unit in Europe, like their brothers might have been, right? They might have been the only Japanese American stationed with a Marine unit. Yeah. And so they're out there by themselves. And their Marine unit doesn't know who they are initially, doesn't know to trust them, and so forth. 
And some of these guys did some incredibly heroic things. Like what they would do is they would crawl at night, you know, a mile or two across the jungle, get to a Japanese encampment, eavesdrop on what the officers were saying, and then sneak back out to the American unit and say, okay, the Japanese are moving in the morning. They're going to attack here. They're going to do X, Y, and Z. And even General MacArthur gave them credit for giving so much information to the American Marine units, right? There's another story uh, in the battle at Saipan where the Japanese were being pushed northward and they would be hiding out in caves and they would hold civilians hostage. The Marines had cornered uh, about eight Japanese soldiers in this one cave that had about 100 civilians that they were holding hostage. And the MIS uh, soldier, Japanese-American, um, Bob Kubo, said, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to talk them out. And his own his own commanding officer said, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> and he goes, no, too many of our Marines have died. This has got to stop. So he they literally lowered him down. He went into the cave. He, uh, he came out later and he said immediately the eight Japanese soldiers surrounded him, their gun, guns drawn, and they didn't know what to make of him. They thought he was a traitor and, and mm -hmm. so forth to the emperor of Japan. But he talked them into understanding that he was an American and that he served his uh, country, which is the United States of America. He also told them, look, you're surrounded. There's, there's no way you're getting out of here. There's no reason these people need to die. There's no reason you need to die. So he, he they eventually let him go and they said, we'll let you know what we're going to do. At two o'clock in the afternoon, either everybody's coming out or nobody's coming out. Yeah. So they let him go. Two o'clock in the afternoon, the American Marines are watching, you know, wondering what's going to happen. And sure enough, the civilians start coming out. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the Japanese soldiers said, let them go. And then the Japanese soldiers came out and surrendered. But, you know, the idea of crawling into a cave with armed enemy soldiers in there and your only real weapon is your mouth is that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, unbelievably brave. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. The yeah, almost. Yeah, that's, that's I'll stick to that. Unbelievably brave. <laughs> right, right. Terrifying. Well, one other story that I need to tell, there was another uh, uh, MIS specialist, and his name was uh, Kazuo Yamane. He was actually stationed in Washington, D.C. His Japanese was so good, they had him doing high-level stuff, right? And they found this box that had fallen off of a Japanese freighter, and they brought it to Washington, D.C. There's all these notebooks and stuff in there, documents in there. And it was labeled of no military value. But they said, you know, take a look at this. See, what, see what's in there. Literally, the first notebook that he takes out, he starts reading it. And he realizes that it is a description of where all the armaments are stored in Japan, manufactured and stored. Wow. And so as, as he's deciphering all this and translating all this, and then he turns it in, and he didn't even understand the importance of it until years later right mm -hmm. but the army took that said oh my goodness they now knew where to bomb when they attacked tokyo and other parts of japan where they should drop the bombs to destroy the the stronghold of of arms for the japanese uh, military and that helped to end the war years earlier than might otherwise have happened saving countless lives on both sides of the the conflict and then after the war, these Japanese-American soldiers served as interpreters and translators in the war, war crime trials that were held in Japan. And they also helped to reintegrate all the soldiers coming back into Japan and helped to write the Japanese constitution, which stands to this day. And, you know, as we know, Japan now is one of our strongest allies in the Pacific theater. And in large part, it's due to the constitution that was written after the war, the Japanese American uh, linguists had a big hand in. So as we get to the end of the war and these uh, these Japanese American soldiers start coming back and reintegrating into their communities, when were the camps closed and when were they allowed to go back to, was their home even still there when they went back into you know California, Hawaii? And you know that was up, it had to be a mess. It was, that's a, that's a great description. It was a mess, right? 
So the camps start to close between 1945 and 1947. It takes a, a while to dismantle the camps and send people home and so forth. And Japanese Americans who are in the camps are given $25 and a one-way train ticket to go and reestablish their lives, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them went east, like to places like Cleveland and Chicago, but many of them came back to the West Coast, right? And as you can imagine, and you mentioned your father, you know, it's like, what would be our concerns, right? Put a roof over our head, put food on the table, send the kids back to school, get a job, rebuild our communities, right? But there was also, for the Japanese Americans who were in camp, a sense of shame, a sense that somehow we had done something wrong to bring this egregious violation upon our community, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's the classic identification with the aggressor. It's like we bought into we were not 110% American. And that's why a lot of Japanese Americans who are my age, and I'm in my early 60s, um, you know, and, and, and Japanese Americans maybe even a little older than me, we don't speak Japanese because our parents didn't want us speaking Japanese. They wanted us speaking English. They wanted us being 110% American. So mm. this would never happen to us again, right? right. So th that's the civilian population. The veterans come back and they say, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we just... We just put our lives on the line. We fought for this country. We, you know, I saw my best friend get killed on the battlefield. I saw my brother shot up. You know, and, and they had just given it, they had gone for broke, right? They had given right. it their all. They were coming back and they say, we deserve full rights of being an American citizen, right? Mm -hmm. So especially in Hawaii, the veterans came back, took advantage of the GI Bill, went back to college. And they became the lead, you know, the the political leaders, the business leaders, the educational leaders uh, in Hawaii, right? And mm -hmm. you know, Hawaii is the only state can, that can say they've had two Japanese American governors. They've had a number of Japanese American U.S. senators and Congress people galore, you know, and their state assembly almost all Japanese Americans. And I, I jokingly say to my friends in Hawaii that you cannot grow up in Hawaii and have gone to the public schools without having a Japanese-American teacher and a Japanese-American principal. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. that pervasive. So yeah. they helped transform the territory of Hawaii into the state of Hawaii, you know, which mm -hmm. it became a state in 1959. Yeah. On the, on the continental U.S., the impact was a little bit less because it's so much bigger, and the, the Japanese-American uh, numbers are so much smaller, but Japanese-American... Uh, veterans came back and, and and their feeling was, you know, this isn't right. We, we, we've we got to uh, not consider ourselves second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. But there are many anecdotes, many stories of just the pervasive racism that still continued after the war. You know, uh, Senator, uh, Senator Dan Inoue, who became a very powerful senator uh, throughout his career, he was a member of the 442nd. He lost his right arm in battle mm -hmm. he went back to san francisco at one point on his way back to hawaii and wanted to get his hair cut and the barber said i don't cut jap hair yeah so it, and that's just an example of, yeah. of the kind of individual racism that um, these uh, people would face so they come back they start to to build that community um it, it didn't it didn't all just happen though. They didn't just come back and then were accepted as Americans. This had to go through civil rights uh, into the sixties. They fought, you know, like your father fought in the Korean war. Um, but it took a long time for America to redress the wrongs that they had committed during world war II. How did we get to there? Because with this decades of, of fighting to get those rights, to get that, uh, you know, that uh, respect, that appreciate, you know, the uh, appreciation. Right, right. You know, and <clears throat> I could speak for hours on this. So, Sean, if you want me to come back at some point, I'd be more than happy to come back. But yeah, we're kind of flashing forward a bit. I, you know, I, I want to get the, gather the story in the hour we have, but you know, I want to make right. sure that right, there's right, many right. stories we're leaving on the table. You know, uh, we're leaving more on the table than we're covering. But yeah. uh, thank you for the opportunity. You know, the '50s is a time of great change uh, for America. 1952, we have the McCarran-Walters Act. It, it allows Japanese to naturalize 
for the very first time. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's a small change. Uh, 1954, we have Brown versus Board of Education that says separate but equal is no longer the law of the land. The civil rights movement with Rosa Parks starts in the 50s. You know? um, and in 1959, Hawaii becomes a state and Danny Noe is elected as the first representative uh, to go to Congress from this new state of Hawaii. So what better symbol of loyalty to send than somebody who fought for this nation and literally gave his right arm? Mm -hmm. The 60s comes around. It's even a greater time of change, right? We have the civil rights movement in full bloom. We have the anti-war movement where young people are saying, hell no, I won't go. We have the women's movement where people are, uh, young men and women are really questioning what is equality and what does it look like? And then we have the ethnic studies movement where young, um, you know, uh, minority students are starting to question what was the history of their communities. And that was yeah. true of Japanese Americans, where a lot of young Japanese Americans in the 60s said, what the hell happened? You know, why didn't my parents, why didn't my grandparents resist? We would have resisted. We would have said, hell no, we won't go. You know, mm -hmm. they don't realize it was a different time in a different place. Right. And were there Japanese Americans who served in Vietnam as well? Oh, yes, 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 yes. And um, and they went through that whole experience, you know, uh, of being Asian American in, in, in a war where you're fighting, again, other Asians and the racism that's going back. And they weren't in segregated units at that particular time. Uh, and then, of course, just the reaction that the general American public had to returning Vietnam veterans. You know, yeah. and how we demonize, you know, uh, Vietnam vets for no fault of their own, you know, for what they had to endure and what they had to go through and what they had to do to serve our nation. Uh, so just again, I'm hitting the, the treetops on this one. But in the 70s, the Japanese American community starts to argue amongst itself. Do we want to fight for an apology or do we want to just let it go? You know, like the elderly in particular said, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I don't want to remember. I don't want to have to feel that stuff anymore. Yeah. Just let it go. Another group would say, no, what was done to us is wrong. You know, and, and we're deserving of a good, good, clean apology. Just give us an apology. No money. Yeah. Because if, if you give me money, you're insulting me. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're putting a price tag on my civil liberties. And then the there's third an acknowledgement, group, there's an acknowledgement that needs to take place of yes. you. Yeah. And then there's a third group that said, you know, yeah, we're deserving of an apology and we're deserving of some money because it wasn't like they just called us names and hurt our feelings. You know, there were real material losses. My father yeah. lost his farm. My uncle died in war. My mother couldn't go on to school type of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. All of that comes to a head and uh, eventually and and again to your listeners i apologize i'm giving you just the mountaintop uh, version of the story but eventually it turns into a bill and the bill starts to work its way through congress and on september 17th 1987 this bill is argued on the house floor and it was argued on the house floor for a very particular reason so I'll, i'm going to give your listeners a chance to guess what is the significance of september 17th 1987. Any guess? I'm bad at history. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'll say it and I'll go, oh. Yeah, well, it was it is the 200th anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. Oh, yeah, that. The con yeah. You know, you've heard of that, <laughs> uh, heard that, of that document, yeah. right? So September 17th, 1787 is when the Constitution was signed. 200 years later, we picked that date because it just happened to be the 200th anniversary, but we right. picked September 17th because we framed this bill not as being a bill about let's help the poor Japanese Americans that were put into camp. It was about constitutional rights. It was about civil liberties for all Americans. Mm -hmm. If it can be taken away from me, it can be taken away from you. And we need to make sure this never happens again. And on September 17, 1987, the bill passes the House of Representatives. 243 representatives voted for this bill. 180 of them were Democrats, 63 of them were Republican. I mean, it was a bipartisan effort that we probably couldn't see today in, in Congress, right? Seven months later, it hits the floor of the Senate, and it passes the floor of the Senate. 
that means we need only one more signature, right? One more supporter. And that's the president of the United States. And for your listeners, who was the president in 1988? It was none other than Ronald Reagan. And for for those of you who remember Ronald Reagan, a very conservative president, and there were many of us, my, myself included, who thought there is no way on God's green earth that Ronald Reagan is going to sign this bill. It was just too progressive in, in my estimation, right? But the thing about Ronald Reagan, whether you agreed with his policies or not, most people would agree that Ronald Reagan was a great communicator. Yeah. He had the ability to tell stories and touch people's hearts and move them in a certain direction. Well, if you could tell Ronald Reagan a story that would touch his heart, you could have a great advocate on your hands. So the question was, what story could we tell Ronald Reagan that would touch his heart and personalize this whole issue for him and align it with his political values, right? Well, you mentioned Kazuo Masuda, the young soldier who said, I'm doing this because this is the only way that my family can have a chance in America. Two weeks after he said that, Sergeant Masuda was killed in battle in Italy, fighting for his nation, the United States of America. After the war, his family is released from Gila River Camp in Arizona, and they return to Santa Ana, California, and they want to reestablish their lives. And they're met with nothing but hate speech, racial taunts, and threats of bodily harm. The army realizes this is a PR fiasco, that one of its own fallen heroes, his family can't move back home. So they send out an, a contingent of army officers to have a medal ceremony for the Masuda family. And they bestowed the Distinguished Service Cross to his sister. Well, amongst those officers on that day was a young white American captain named Ronald Reagan. Hmm. Ronald Reagan was a captain in the army at that time, and he was with that uh, group of officers. And that night at a, a banquet dinner, Ronald Reagan addressed the audience. The Masuda family was there. The parents of Kazuo Masuda were there. And Reagan says, the blood that is soaked into the sands is all of one color. America stands unique in the world, the only country not founded on race, but on an ideal. Mr. and Mrs. Masuda, as one member of the American family to another, for what your son Kazuo did, thanks. Wow. That story was relayed to President Reagan in the 80s, and his response was, I remember what those soldiers did for America. It wasn't the only reason, but it made it personal to him. It, it aligned it with what his vision of a greater America should be. And because of that, and some other uh, political reasons, on August 10th, 1988, President Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act, which provided an apology and uh, symbolic monetary reparations to the Japanese Americans who were affected by Executive Order 9066, 40 something years earlier. Yeah, I was just looking 46 years later what yeah, did it for, what did yeah. it mean for the Japanese American community? I had the good fortune of writing a book with a couple of other authors called Achieving the Impossible Dream. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it was about this whole story that we're talking about. It was the impossible dream. The the idea that this terrible, terrible, terrible thing could happen to us, mm -hmm. and then our nation would apologize that and and in a symbolic way give us money you know mm -hmm. america had never apologized to anyone uh for doing that type of thing so it was the impossible dream come true and it was validation that we as a community that our sons and daughters who served during world war ii had done the right thing hmm. you know? and i remember speaking to a, a, an elderly man. Well, he was elderly to me at the time and, uh, and on the day that the bill passed. And he said, he must have been in his 80s at that time. And he said, today for the first time since World War II, I feel like an American. Hmm. I mean, the, the pain 
the shame, the stain of what happened during World War II, even though the community had risen up and done well and Japanese Americans went on to you know, live successful lives, there was something still deep inside of them, some existential feeling that it wasn't complete until that apology occurred. And so that's how I view it as a Japanese American. As an American, I view it as the strength of our nation. You know, no, no one person, no one nation is perfect. And when our nation makes a mistake, it had the strength and the courage to own up to that mistake. It says a lot about who we are as Americans. Hmm. And, you know, for those listening too, the number of people on both sides of the aisle, you know, from Ted Kennedy to Newt Gingrich, you know, from Norman Mineta to to um, Dick Cheney, right? Mm -hmm. We had people on both sides of the aisle come together on this and say, yeah, we got to do something about this. And yes, we need to apologize. Again, uh, it's a case study of how strong our nation can be. The monument behind you, where can people view that? And, and what was it built uh, for? It um, is in downtown Los Angeles in what's known as the Little Tokyo uh, District. And in fact, we are building a brand new building around it. Uh, mm -hmm. And groundbreaking is in February. So, I mean, mm -hmm. this, it, this is very timely that you should ask that we are breaking ground on a new building that will surround it and uh, have low-income housing, affordable low-income housing, businesses and restaurants, and as well as an expansion of our organization uh, footprint. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, again, it's located on uh, Temple and uh, between Temple and First Street in downtown Los Angeles. You can Google it and find the map. And essentially, it's a sloping monument, as you can see. And on the back side is uh, the names of 16,000 young uh, Japanese American men and women who literally went overseas during World War II. We'll be building an additional wall for an additional 16,000 names of Japanese-American uh, veterans who served during World War II, but who didn't ship out overseas. That just yeah. has not happened yet. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is the slope of the monument is to replicate the slopes of the mountains in northern France, where mm. uh, the 442nd fought one of its most uh, famous battles, the rescue of the Lost Battalion where they went into the forests of uh, the Vosges Mountains and rescued a battalion of uh, Texas soldiers uh, that had been surrounded by the Nazis. And they, they eventually uh, saved 211 soldiers from Texas and in the process took over 300 casualties. Mm -hmm. But that was the math of the day. Um. Mitch, I want to thank you so much for for joining me here and you know giving us sort of the overview. I'd love to have you back either on a scuttlebutt or on one of our BBC Monday night Zoom programs. Uh, you know we're on usually Monday nights at seven here on the Eastern Time Zone, but uh, to hear more of this story, hear more, uh, you know, fill in a bit of those blanks throughout those couple decades after the war. But I'm sure even to hear more stories of some of the individuals who served uh, in the European theater, the Pacific theater, uh, you know, I'm sure there's. There's so much. And can people go to your website for Go For Broke, find any of these stories? What's the best way to interact and how can people support your mission? Uh, goforbroke.org. Uh, hmm. Come to our website, peruse it. Uh, let us know what you're thinking. Um, and, you know, one of the things, Sean, too, that uh, might be of interest is I'd love to br bring a veteran on to yeah. your uh, podcast. You know, these guys are 100 years old. Uh, literally hmm. one of them who... Uh, I know very well that I see often turned 101 last Monday. Uh, so, uh, you know, these they're with us for just a short time more. And we, we need to uh, cherish that time that we have with them. But uh, again, I would be happy to come back on. I'd be happy to uh, talk about whatever is of interest to you and your listeners.
Excellent. Well, thank you. And to our listeners, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever the Scuttlebutt releases new episodes. You can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any thoughts, comments, or questions. Um, I encourage you to go to goforbroke.org and look up their mission, their history. Um, And again, uh, I want to thank you, Mitch, for for joining me and for for really just the educational hour that I've got to spend with you. There's so much that I learned um, that I had no I no idea, uh, but I'm so happy having known it now. It, it's it, I'm going to take it with me moving forward. Well, Sean, thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for having me on. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, They have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured tobacco-free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, It was two wonderful conversations, so I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information. Or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, tobacco-free Adagio Health, for your support. We're grateful for the support of UPMC for Life, a UPMC healthcare Medicare program. At UPMC Health Plan, their goal is to improve the health of their members. They can also help you make sense of Medicare, get the answers and information you need, such as how to choose the Medicare Advantage plan that's right for you. UPMC for Life offers a wide range of affordable Medicare Advantage plans, and you military veterans can save money and get more benefits with your Medicare plans. UPMC for Life has plans designed for veterans by veterans. The type of coverage you have from your service may help you decide which plan will be a good fit. If you have TRICARE for Life, UPMC for Life, PPO Salute may be a good fit for you. You can view plan options, including their prescription drug coverage, compare costs, and learn about all the benefits you get when you choose UPMC for Life by going to upmchealthplan.com forward slash Medicare. Thank you so much, UPMC for Life, for sponsoring the Scuttlebutt.